The following is part of our Framework for Trust program at FAC Liverpool. This program considers how our 2021 artists and residents think about trust and the relationship it has to their work. This program is supported by the EU-funded Horizon 2020 project, Arts Formation. More information and the rest of our Framework for Trust program can be found at fact.co.uk. Hi, welcome to our conversation about our shared imaginations of liquidity that is part of FACT's framework series. FACT is the UK's leading organization for the support and exhibition of art and film that embraces new technology and explores digital culture. FACT's framework series aims to explore the two-way learning process which comes from art making, especially the legacy and influence of these exchanges on both the institution and the artist. My name is Annie Yao Kwan. I'm a curator, researcher and educator, usually based in London, but also working transnationally across global Asia. I am FACT's curator in residence for 2020 to 2021. This week, I will be thinking about trust with this year's FACT and Jerwood fellow, Angela Y.T. Chan. Hi, Angela. Hi, Annie. How's it going? Well, um, it's been raining all afternoon, so very suitably <laughs> we're talking about liquidity and, you know, many uh, tropical rainstorms recently that's beyond the norm. Um, mm. So definitely signaling something to do with climate change and so on. How are you? I'm all right. I'm drinking some hot water at the moment. Um, so, yeah, uh, thinking about liquidity in different vessels as well. Mm, yes, definitely. I think we arrived at this um, framework of liquidity because we've both been quite fascinated by water in different ways. And, you know, I think in our last conversation, we were thinking how it's such an interesting concept, I suppose, that is both material and political, but also incredibly expansive in terms of the imagination. Um, and certainly here, like, because it's been raining so heavily, you know, uh, the water that surrounds us has such a material impact on our lives. You know, <laughs> there's been, you know, little floods in the gutters, um, storms in the center of town. And also, you know, of course, in the news, I've heard like the um, incredible flooding in the New York subway, um, which sort of makes you think how water moves around the world and all the different surges um, due to different I suppose, uh, ecological and environmental um, influences as well. Yeah, definitely. I guess like here in the UK, it's just a cultural norm to complain about the rain or to um, moan about uh, a grey day that's anticipating rain. Um, and there is like a sort of dread, especially in the summer or over a bank holiday, when you do see darker skies and... Um, at the same time, there's a lot of um, issues at the moment across the country where some regions are experiencing quite severe droughts, um, while other parts are, you know, having quite sustained repeated flooding. Um, it's It's been quite a number of years now that repetitions like these have been happening. Um, and yet, you know, we are still expanding onto floodplains and um, yeah, inner cities are being uh, 
really suffering under the infrastructure that hasn't been built to equip it for these types of ecological changes and um, I guess the uh, unchanged power imbalance uh, that governs um, these infrastructures and spaces um, and also expectations of what can happen when the changes are so drastically negative um so yeah the, the weather the changing climate it all kind of gathers us to think about water in a very um localized but uh starting to recognize how macro and transnational and borderless it, it really all is so yeah. i'm excited to talk more about liquidity and water and its cycles with you there are so many examples aren't there I mean, I think about, you know, I, I um, am based in Southeast London, and I remember reading a little bit about the uh, Ladywell Park. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, Ladywell Fields, the area where for a long time they had, uh, you know, created a kind of concrete covering over the river, uh, trying to kind of divert the river, and which then, you know, possibly is correlated to how um, there were some floods, I think it was in the mid 60s. And so um, with a grant with, from the European Commission, they managed to, in a way, uncover the river again and allow it to have its natural flow. And, you know, so recognizing that by creating this natural feel, um, when the waters, you know, rose, it naturally had a way of uh, flowing in and, um, and contained it in a very organic way. And then, of course, when it receded, you had this beautiful park. But it was very welcoming to you know children and people in the neighborhood to get to know how the river works and what you know what's the wildlife around it you know so there's a way i think of um, something to think about there about how we relate to water and how we live uh, alongside the natural um, cycles of water and of course this makes me think of like a story of like bongkok lake in uh, phnom penh in cambodia where there was a natural lake and you know, um, many communities were also living on the lake, you know, on in those still houses and there's a fishing community. And because of the development, um, they also tried to fill in the lake, like fill it with concrete and so on. Um, but then the outcome of that was then, of course, the natural rainfall didn't have anywhere to go to pool the water and it led to then floods in other parts of the city. So there's something very interesting about human uh, ambition and endeavors to control water and that leading to like all sorts of repercussions isn't it with the city life and the way we think of water then as becoming threatening uh, and undesirable rather than something that we kind of work with in a natural rhythm with. yeah definitely as soon as you were talking about how the river had been uh, I guess straightened or kind of like um, developed to to go in a more efficient or a more structured way that suits urban planning or I guess like the landscape of, of our uh, human developments. It's almost like denying the water cycle itself. Like this really strong <laughs> imagery has just come into my mind about how, you know, how meandering and naturally curving and flowing rivers and water bodies are. But once you try to um, put, uh, you know, defence walls and straighten these rivers, of course they're going to burst their banks. Um, and it's, you know, if you're filling it in with concrete, you're putting this horizontal, like, strata 
onto uh you know into a space that's not meant to be um straightened or filled in and then it, it it's almost like a if you imagine the water cycle going from the clouds to the ground underground and back up the ground again it's this circle that then is disconnected and so what then of this of the water cycle with that disruption um it then also impacts the you know societal and the climatic and the um the many other cycles that are also intertwined with this i think there's something definitely interrelated between the kind of capitalist industrialization in relation to water but also the repercussions and as we're kind of trying to unpack a little bit here you know it also makes me think of the various dam projects you know notably the one of course also in southeast asia with the mekong river where you know again there's a human endeavor to control water but it does lead to at times a kind of drought that leads the water to be water levels to become so low that the river is no longer you know utilized in the way that it used to be or then other times when you know a sudden uh, flash flooding happens then the water sort of zooms down you know in a way that cannot is not controlled by the natural curve of banks and so on and then of course then leads to flooding like much lower sort of down river and we've also seen like you know the disasters that happened when that happened so there is definitely something that is interlinked between big corporations nationalist endeavors you know how it affects sort of local communities and the way of life but also the livelihoods you know it's really something to to think about yeah absolutely and i think i've heard something um recently how due to the massive rainfalls in china there were also places that had dams that were really too full and decisions were made to let them flow and essentially to create sacrifice zones that will be flooded because of these dams being uh, the, the gates being lifted and so it it puts us into a really complex situation so we're now valuing uh, people's cultures homes by how worthy they are to the capitalist system how much they do bring into the economy and that would determine whether or not they will be flooded and completely decimated and so it it makes us really closed off to how much water can impact people in a much longer term when we're facing the immediacy and the urgency of the flooding See, as the waters rise, all attention is on that and how far it will go. But once it starts receding, what else also recedes along with it? What also gets washed away, and what's left behind that is the debris of essentially societal disregard and discrimination. Well, I think you articulated that really wonderfully about how what is washed away and what recedes, and of course that makes me think about how. You know, we have had this issue of rising waters in certain parts of the world where it is eroding communities because land masses that have been at risk, and so communities have to be relocated. So, of course, the famous example is Kiribati, um, but there are other places as well which have experienced extreme flooding. But of course, you know, there's a counter narrative as well that human nature is very resilient and. We weren't always so landbound either with these kind of cosmopolitan cityscapes. In terms of capital, these water routes are being affected, and 
the way we utilize water and think of water has a certainly societal impact in terms of currency and value. And I think that's also very interesting because we think of liquidity also as a term that we associate with the financial system as well. Water is such a source of life, but also because I think of the protests in different uh, contexts of Southeast Asia where water cannons are used against people. Um, and it, you know, it just goes to show that there is really a fraught um, relationship at times when the political um, uses water and uh, as an instrumentalized uh, weapon you know, against democracy. So there's also other things that we can think about that too that complicates it. Yeah, I mean, like even if you think about water, how that can be empowering in terms of like the political um, methods and strategies, be water from the Taoist and also Bruce Lee. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's something that can combat the water cannons, the tear gas, the, you know, unrelenting violence of the state. At the moment, I'm kind of beginning a residency with Sonic Ads um, that looks into environmental pollution specifically looking more into tear gas and the residues that remain in our environments for the longer term, even after protest. And so how do water systems and these pollutants come into the conversation in, you know, many years time after these yeah, sites of violence are um, erupting all over the world? Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's really important when you talk about um, protest and and the, the social and climate uh, justice struggles that are so interrelated and are only increasing, are only overlapping, and we need to have a much more intersectional way of thinking about the solutions that we want to use in order to build a fairer, healthier, safer world for everyone. I love that you brought that up, actually. That's such a nice reminder because... I think that's also one of the slogans that was popularized during the Hong Kong protests. I think they utilized be water, isn't it, as a way to describe the fluidity of a decentralized protest where, you know, every person was as much invested and immersed in their um, collective goal, but it wasn't uh, a protest that was necessarily just led by one or two key figures. And that was the way the civilian activation of democracy had matured in Hong Kong through like the different protests. And I thought that was very inspiring as well, as, well, um, as it encouraged a kind of, I suppose, a flexible approach in like our strategy, like in terms of like dealing with power. And maybe now we can kind of connect some of these thoughts we've been sharing about water liquidity in thinking about trust. And I wanted to invite you to uh, share a little bit about the project that you've been working on investigating the water reports in the UK. Yes, so I am in production at the moment on a project called Rain Paradox. And I'm doing this as a fellow with Fact and Gerald Arts. And this project is really a research into the climate framings that the governments and corporations have put out um, in the past year or so. And so the title of the project takes its name from the Great British Rain Paradox, which was published in June 2020, and it was sponsored by RB Finish, the household dishwasher tablet company, um, and also supported by the Love Water campaign, which is 
uh, a campaign led by over 40 water charities, environmentalists, also, um, I guess, uh, companies as well. And the report was then forwarded by the environmental agency as well. And so published on the government website, as well as uh, disseminated through different water campaigns and charities, this public broadcast, in a way, uh, projects that in two decades' time, we are going to be facing water scarcity. And it names climate change, the overconsumption of water, as well as the increasing population as the three key factors for this projection. And uh, while these are, you know, somewhat valid claims, um, I'm more troubled by the clumping of increasing population with, you know, the overconsumption as well on an individual level. So firstly, when we're talking about um, population and climate change, it's always very dangerous to lead into a Malthusian uh, discourse, which basically means that the issue is overpopulation and the overuse of resources is because that there are many people or increasing um, populations in the world. And this isn't true. Uh, we have plenty of resources. It is the distribution and the infrastructure and the imbalance of power that is causing famines, uh, causing poverty, causing a fight for resources that is ensuring that nation states are gearing up for this projected lack of whether it's water or grains or human resources, making sure that they can amass as much material and wealth and power and status before the uncertainty that's to come. So to mix overpopulation with the overconsumption narrative is already very dangerous. It's also not factually correct. Oh, I should add also that with the, with the overpopulation narrative, there is also uh, a, a very clear link between this approach to environmentalism uh, with the pro-border and anti-immigrant sentiments and policies that are increasingly being established in the UK by the Tory government. And so we can't, you know, distinguish uh, the, the, the quite fascist um, or the so-called eco-fascist claims um, that are being used, even at these kinds of governmental or like public water campaign projects that are happening now and so while it doesn't name overpopulation as a specific term making increasing population as quite a key subject without saying that you know over uh, over consumption of resources by companies and by multinational corporations that are uh, situated in in the UK or or have very good ties with the government and operating elsewhere in the world, it's quite problematic that in the report, the onus is put on the individual household consumer to uh, limit their own water consumption. There's been no mention of state deregulations that have been happening for many years now. You know, every single river in England is polluted. A, a report came out only a few weeks after the Great British Rain Paradox was uh, published, saying that 
none of the rivers pass regulation standards. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting report to be looking at and to really analyze the language and the framing and the arguments that are being, um, I guess, put forward in, um, in these pages, because it's, you know, remember it's being sponsored by a dishwasher tablet company, a detergent company. The report says that about half of the population that they surveyed, which was around um, 2,000 people in the UK, I don't know like where in the UK they are or what kind of socioeconomic status they are. I have asked the environmental agency, but they couldn't disclose. But yeah, so about half the population that they surveyed incorrectly identified that just using a dishwasher is more like water efficient than hand washing and it, it, it just says things like oh don't pre-rinse your dishes before you use the dishwasher and it's like well most people don't have a dishwasher you know it's it's targeting an audience uh, or a consumer that might not necessarily be the key culprits of climate change or environmental change that is really urgently needing to be discussed and uh, finding strategies for so it yeah it troubles me basically so looking into this report is really revealing and um, for me I think it's really important to critique it and not let it stand as the hegemonic narrative of this current moment uh, where we're still in the pandemic we're at the brink of, you know, a, a much bigger understanding of uh, public understanding of climate change. We're already seeing the effects of it in the UK. Um, and we've, we've seen it for much longer in elsewhere in the world. And yeah, as I say, not allow this to be the only narrative that documents uh, the public sentiment at the moment. And so I invite different community kind of conscious and uh, community strategizing organizers around the UK to you know, speak about their regions and to speak about their own personal water stories or connections or, you know, it's, it's really thinking about water more than just um, a consumer product, which is how the Great British Rain Paradox frames it as, you know, we're not even seen as citizens, we're seen as consumers who pay water utility bills and so reconnecting our spiritual our kind of bodily um, but also kind of you know communal stories of water is really important there are speakers who I've invited who think about the migratory expanse of water how we've you know ended up in the British Isles in the first place and how we carry our cultures and our ancestral practices through the healing properties of water, through reconnecting with the spaces that, um, whether you know they're local to us or around different places of our homelands, how we can reconnect with those bodies of water on our own personal terms, you know, despite borders and despite you know, being being situated in, in the UK. So I think it's really impactful to say, look, we are projected to have water scarcities in, you know, uh, in 20 years time. This report that they've written, an archive on the government website, 
provides like a snapshot of this moment, which is set on this timeline narrative that the corporation and the state are authors of, but who's offering our narratives or documenting them or archiving them? What are the counter narratives that need to be told? So I'm excited to share it with everyone and to invite more I guess openness in the way that we talk about water stories and our very everyday uses that have much longer term impacts beyond the water bill but you know things that are actually impacting our more sustainable practices for our health and the health of the environment as well. That's so interesting and you know we think of course, water by nature, it's about seeping and leaking and flows. And I think you very rightly brought up how uh, historically migrations have come through water, whether it was, you know, the Vietnamese who came in a particular wave escaping through water. Recently, I've also been learning a lot about the the Chinese seafaring community that had come over, um, conscripted really by the British to join in the war efforts. And then many of them settled in Liverpool and had families, but then were very suddenly deported, uh, causing ruptures in those families, uh, leading some of the families to think that, oh, um, the father had abandoned them when really they were literally taken and, uh, you know, told to go back to China. So again, you know, there's a lot of these narratives of power that are played out through water. And certainly, of course, when we think about empire and the reach of empire through water, you know, uh, has really played out in the Southeast Asian region as well. I wanted to ask you, because this project is really fascinating, like what led you in the development of your arts practice to come to this topic, to come to want to make this inquiry? So this is actually one of the first, actually it's the second um, visual arts project that I have been producing for the past several years. I've been working as an independent curator and researcher, specifically with my project called Worm Art and Ecology. And I have been focusing on climate change issues, specifically the intersectional and racialized discussions about it and, and really looking at how the inequity of climate change is sustained by the political struggles um, around the world and where as a you know a, a British person of colour I situate myself in communicating these climate change issues but doing so in creative means that hopefully give a different type of connection to policy or the sciences or even the news media and so, uh, you know, at the same time, acknowledging that the arts also has its own systemic barriers, given its historical and continued elitism. But it's been it's been on my mind to look into water for quite a long time. And the past year has given me support and also time to really look into the research beyond curatorial means and to explore things as as a research artist and um you know doing substantial research but then communicating them in 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 visual means and so early in the year i was looking in the colonial production of dynamite in britain 
Um, so it's you know really interesting what you say about um, the, how the empire uh, plays into our water narratives and the maritime industry. And in the spring of this year, I was showing this video work called Exports Explode. And it was exhibited at the Watts Tyler Country Park, which is a nature reserve at the Thames Estuary. And it's for Estuary 2021 Festival and supported by Metal Culture. And it, for me, it was interesting to research the Pit Sea Explosives Factory, which actually sits on the site of the Watts Tyler Country Park. And this factory was one of the few that were dotted around the UK, which the British government coordinated or partnered with Alfred Nobel of the Nobel Prizes to produce, you know, British made dynamites for the empire and its allies. And so these explosives were made by water, as in the factories were situated by water and carefully loaded onto the ships to then be exported and to detonate different lands across the world. So for me, I was interested in looking at climate change and conflict, and it made sense for me to start with the British Industrial Revolution era, whereby, you know, Alfred Nobel and the British Explosive Syndicate, which is the British government's branch or corporation for this, began as a startup and really turned into one of the first multinationals as we know it today. And it set the kind of ideological, technological and commercial frameworks that we see in free market imperialism today and in the arms industry which uh, today, which the uh, UK and the UK government plays a very important role in. Fast forward to today, where you know we are living in the pandemic, and at the, at the beginnings of it, there was such a huge campaign to just feed the kids in poverty in in this country. And yet, a few weeks after the government gave in and said, "Okay, fine, we will, you know, provide free school meals to children through the pandemic," after months of campaigning, they release an announcement saying that they are going to be spending the largest defence um, budget over the next five years. It, and this is the largest since the Cold War, the largest in, since like 30 years. And so what are we trying to protect here? Or what are we trying to attack? And given that climate change and is, is, is one of the really pressing agendas, but you know, scientists are de demanding for more funding, People are demanding for more research and resources in order to switch to a greener, fairer, safer transition. We're spending so much on, on defence and military. And it goes to show that the empire hasn't, the empire remains and it will continue to extract resources. It will continue to threaten the people who protect lands and natural resources around the world. It will continue to export munitions and fear and violence and ideological frameworks of um, racism, xenophobia, and ensure that the supremacy continues despite of climate change. You know, it's, it's pretty scary. And so 
so so this research brought me to really think about water um, in a geographical and historical framework and zooming into like the UK government and uh, corporations ideas of how to actually communicate or uh, how to encourage the public to go with its narrative today I think is quite important and so yeah I one of the participants or speakers that I invite to these so-called living room conversations in my current uh, Rain Paradox video project um, Amara Spence who's based in Birmingham speaks of also how Birmingham itself its canals were um, complicit in exporting bullets and um, shackles that led to the direct enslavement of people and murder of people around the world. And we had a really great conversation um, about these historical timelinings of narrative and public support or how it doesn't identify the root causes of climate change, which is essentially white supremacy, patriarchy, imperialism. Often when we encounter cities with waterways. We tend to enjoy them greatly. There's a kind of romanticized aesthetic around waterways, but really a lot of them, I think in the UK are also uh, have fraught histories. And of course, what comes to mind is also the beautiful um, water areas in Bristol. Of course, that's linked with the slave trade and Colston, you know, which has all been in conversation in the last year because of the toppling of various um, statues that were considered racist. We're certainly acknowledging this history and finding it very difficult to come to terms with how do we reconcile these ruptured histories, this um, intergenerational trauma as a repercussion of these activities, and then now how do we find, I suppose, a positive or healing way forward in living with the environment uh, in a much more kind of coexistent, interdependent way rather than an extractive way. And I wonder here, um, thinking about your work also in speculative fiction, how you begin to reimagine this different narrative uh, as counterpoints to these kind of political narratives of power. Uh, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about your work in that uh, area and how that might feed into this project. Yeah, um, so I co-direct two science fiction research groups, um, the London Chinese Science Fiction Group, which I also co-founded and currently also directs with several others, the London science fiction research community. I first began to be interested in speculative fiction when I was researching climate uh, change narratives and how we differently consume and also understand environmental and climate knowledges. And so how do we talk about histories and presence in, a, in an accountable, responsible way that's also imaginative enough for our future projections to be grounded in, I guess, narratives that uh, represent us. I think there's a lot to be taking away from decolonial and anti-racist uh, science fiction narratives, which really embody an activist spirit that says that we can transform the worlds that we live in if we change perspectives and uh, that we that we see things from and that we kind of narrate from. 
a lot of this I feel is really suited to the work of archiving and self-archiving understanding that a lot of our stories don't end up on the pages of books or in the folders of archives because those are gatekept by certain institutions or certain funders or you know certain bodies of knowledge uh, keepers and so fictioning is a way that really kind of tries to short circuit some of those barriers so in this project there's a short little comic book narrative that also goes on throughout the film and it just interweaves between the participants living room conversations so the living room conversations are video calls that I've been having with people across lockdown around the country and this speculative comic uh, strip that's animated in the video talks about this little bit of moss that you know holds a lot of water it's very squidgy and soft and bouncy and um, I see moss as this organic biotechnology that is maybe a symbol of the, the water holding capacities you know it, it kind of experiences drought and it falls into this irrigation pipe underground and then above ground and then it finally drops onto your windowsill nice and plump and full of water and it's you know it's an environmental sensor that's used a lot to determine the water and air pollution and you know it's it's very easily missed it's not necessarily the most attention seeking <laughs> species out there it works as like a intermediate protagonist as well in this film you know something that it connects us to the environments and reminds us that if that moss is dry or it's you know or it's full of water it's an indication of what our environment is right now and so yeah just a reminder for us to be more interconnected there are really exciting science fiction and speculative fiction narratives out there um that have long been talking about climates and environmental changes but at the moment there seems to be a kind of a new genre of climate stories that really kind of have the new urgency the that, that matches the environmental activism or kind of movement that is picking up as well globally now but there's definitely a lot of issues with how we need to think about who's telling these stories, who's getting published, and how much accountability or actual history is is kind of um, anchored to these futures that we're telling. We can't just imagine without any understanding or any will for a reparative justice system within our presence, let alone our futures. Yeah. It, of course, brings to mind how we make meaning through storytelling to ourselves. And we're always storytelling, whether we're using the different linguistic frameworks of politics or the legal or in the shared cultural narratives we create um, through our cultural products, but also just in the stories that we tell each other on a day-to-day -day basis and the stories we tell ourselves. I also really like that you picked up on this idea of how you know, which stories are archived and articulated, right? Governments and, you know, public policy where they have funding to put out these kind of reports, 
Um, but then, of course, there are many other embodied narratives that are not necessarily shared or um, perhaps don't find a safe space to be shared, or will they find empathy when they're shared? Of course, then we ask ourselves, where are they archived? You know, are they then lost to the ounce of history as time passes? So it makes me think about, I suppose, how water in some way provides this metaphor that's quite expansive in thinking about sort of deep time and histories um, that although in some ways water does um, provide a kind of universal solvent for all our uh, experiences, our lived experiences and histories, uh, it also, also um, holds an archive of a lot of this um, industrial history because of all the different shipwrecks and all the debris and all the bodies that are contained and we are still part of this one ecosystem. Really would like to share this quote from a chapter called On Becoming a Body of Water or Hydrofeminism by Astrida Nemanis. Uh, and she writes, even while in constant motion, water is also a planetary archive of meaning and matter. To drink a glass of water is to ingest the ghost of bodies that haunt that water. When nature calls sometime later, we return to the cistern and the sea, not only our antidepressants, our chemical estrogens, or our more commonplace excretions, but also the meanings that permeate those materialities, disposable culture, medicalized problem solving, ecological disconnect. Just as the deep oceans harbor particulate records of former geological eras, Water retains our more anthropomorphic secrets, even when we would rather forget. Our distant and more immediate past are returned to us in both trickles and floods. I love this passage because it does make me think of how uh, different times in my life also that we have encountered flooding is sort of thing. Oh, gosh, we've... I thought we I thought we solved that problem, but here it comes up again, and all these things are brought up through the rising of waters, right, and the shifting of lands and earth, which also then makes me think of you know during my time of doing research in Cambodia, I remember uh, being on a motorcycle, uh, one of those rare times in my life, uh, out in Kype, and it was such a beautiful landscape, and uh, it was just after some heavy rainfall, and so it was very cool, and I was riding around. And then uh, found this temple and realized then that, you know, next to the temple, there was also another uh, lesser acknowledged killing field because there are some sort of famous, more well-known uh, areas which have been, of course, fenced off. And now people as tourists can go pay their respects to these known killing fields. But actually, there were many of these killing fields dotted throughout Cambodia and um, where there are these kind of mass graves, but of course, people don't always know that they're there. And of course, with time, you know, the earth covers it over, things would grow and so on. But every now and then there's a heavy storm. And of course, the earth shifts and then things emerge, the ghosts of our histories. And I think your sharing of the retelling of stories or reconfiguring of stories is really exciting. I think with speculative fiction as well, we, we can remind ourselves that it doesn't need to be, you know, fancy words or long narratives. That it, it sits within us already with the experiences or kind of histories we hold uh, as we are. We don't need to come to it with extra kind of knowledge or 
stretches of and tools to tell these stories. And so that's the point of my film, Rain uh, Paradox, so that in 20 years' time, we can still look back to this moment and say, these were the counter-narratives that existed. And so the people that I've invited to speak, you know, they're speculating in a way through telling their own histories or experiences of water. And, you know, I can give a quick brief teaser to, to what's um, actually in the film. And so I've invited people to either have conversations with their friends or families or with me um, to talk about these water stories. And so we have Kajal and Fatima who run this amazing project called Kitchen Cultures, who talk about their fermentation practices and um, activities with with other people and communities of women who they mention actually largely come from uh, areas of the world where water is somewhat scarce or it comes in a lot in you know some parts of the year and not so much in other parts and so that affects the food recipes or uh, methods that are used um and they also talk about you know <laughs> how much bathing is a healing practice but actually outside the bath it might be a water might be a really terrifying uh space and the fear of drowning is is something that um kind of comes up with the other conversations as well where Shamika uh, speaks with her mother. Shamika's living at the seaside in Margate and talks about, you know, how seeing the horizon is a, is a very beautiful thing. The rhythm of life by the sea, by the coast, is something that is very different to having grown up in London. But then Jennifer, her mum, who is uh, from Guyana, speaks a lot about how much it had changed since migrating to Britain in the late 70s and spoke about growing up by the water and fishing and you know the smells of water came up a lot and I think that's something really experiential that we can really easily forget with the more statistical reports such as the Great British Rain Paradox that, that was put out last year. Up in Birmingham as I mentioned earlier Amara talks about the colonial histories of water and also the sonics specifically what how water's healing properties come out through understanding that the sonic reverberations of her ancestors of formerly enslaved African people who leapt from boats from captivity still you know these reverberations still reside in the water cycle and that's something really profound to really connects us to bodies of water in our environments. Then I speak to Roman, who's, you know, based half the time in the Shetland Isles and also Glasgow, where rain is such a physically um, <laughs> impacting experience on a day-to-day -day basis. She's, she talks a lot about, you know, the, the meaningfulness behind nationalising water to put the states back into people's lives so that we we feel that we have some responsibility or accountability to it as well but also accountability needs to be put on the state and corporations who don't and shouldn't run it all alone that they should work for us and psychosis she speaks of of colonialism is something that really filters into the way that we think we can colonize water and nature and people
And this leads us into how I speak to Lali and Yasmin, who are based in Cardiff, and they had been working on a project on the 1919 race riots. And thinking about how water as a migratory um, vessel for which a lot of laborers had come into Cardiff um, from different places around the world and lived in, you know, formerly areas of the city that are very undesirable. There used to be like swamp lands and built on salt marshes. There's a place called Butte Town, which is now, you know, you know, known for its, you know, community of migrant labourers historically but is still very much a racialized area of the city they talk a lot about how you know weather is a kind of Yasmin says it's an external form of ontological discourse that isn't racialized that people feel that all across Cardiff they can talk about um, regardless of their race and but then really situates uh, the fact that the whole city is based on the emotional, spiritual and physical investments of black and people of colour who have, over several generations of communities, have built the Cardiff's wealth. And they talk about this generational impact through regeneration, through the redevelopment of the city again and again, of chucking people out of their homes, rehousing them in uh, even, you know, even less desirable places or, and which impacts their livelihoods and their wealth and their experiences in the city. And I think overall, a lot of the people I've been speaking with don't necessarily stay with, you know, the topics that are brought up in their reports what's more important to them is how water has shaped the landscapes that they have found themselves in around the UK. And that's something very powerful that can only be encapsulated through these kinds of communal conversations and not so much through uh, qualitative, quantitative uh, reports that are kind of, I guess, trying to speak for much of the population through a smaller sample of only 2,000 people whose backgrounds we know nothing about. So yeah, trying to document and say, okay, this is also just a few of us, but we have already very different stories and very different speculations of how we want the future to be. Gosh, thank you so much, Angela, for sharing. That sounds so exciting. And there's always this wonderful um, energy of potentiality and this collective reimagining of our future, which is so necessary. As we have seen in these uh, past couple of years, we've hit critical points again and again uh, in terms of thinking about how we're living, uh, in terms of a sustainable future, a more fair and equitable future. So I think this work is going to be really significant and I really look forward to hearing more about it. Thank you, Annie. I always love hearing your thoughts and also experiences and your own stories of water that you've brought up um, today as well and sending you much love from this side of the water. Well, let's have a drink again when I get back. Nice hot water. <laughs> Maybe a hot tea or something else. See you soon, Angela. Take care. Definitely. I look forward to it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. This has been part of FACT's Framework for Trust program, supported by Arts Formation. The rest of the program can be found at fact.co.uk.